ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take you all the way down in New Orleans this time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a very special edition of Hard to Paint. I'm, of course, David Grubb, and with me today um, is filmmaker Jackson Fager. And the reason he's on today is because uh, one of the most important things that I've done now in retrospect, and I didn't realize this at the time, but one of the most important things that I've done over the last couple of years is participate in his documentary. It's called Algiers American. It's debuting Wednesday, April 19th on Hulu. Uh, it's a five-part series about Edna Carr High School in New Orleans, my alma mater, and uh, what the school and particularly the football program has been through um, in creating an exceptional football team, but also in uh, saving the lives of students who go to this New Orleans public school, one of the most difficult and uh, public school systems on it in and of itself, but in one of the most deadly cities in our country. Um, Jackson and I, our relationship started just almost kind of by happenstance. He was, uh, and I'll, I guess I'll let him tell the story. Uh, Jackson Fager, um, welcome to the show first and foremost, because this is different now. You're on the other side. I'm used to being asked questions by you. And now this time I'm going to be asking you questions. So thank you for joining me today. David, my man, thank you so much for having me. And it's it's a little intimidating to be on the other side because you know, you are so damn good at what you do. And what you said to me in this story, you know, was so vital to making it the story that it is. So thank you. I, you know, but man, <laughs> to answer, to answer, because I get a little emotional even looking at you right now, you know, man, because we, this, this was an emotional experience for everyone involved, right? It's like, this story and what this team and community has done over the last 20 years, and even before that, this is something very precious that they've held on to, right? And that that they're protective of it as they should be. And I'm sure maybe that played a role for you as well, right? And so when something like this is gonna come out and it's a documentary at, of this caliber that's gonna be seen by the world, you only get one chance to do this, right? And so is it gonna be me doing this and earning that trust from, from everyone involved who is a part of this? And then knowing that then your stories are going to be out there and seen by the world and, and some of it's beautiful and some of it's tragic. I mean, it, it's got it all right. So there's a lot of emotions and why I just am so thankful to you for so many reasons, man. And being with you at the film fest premiere and then being with you on Saturday night, every time I see you, I think for the rest of my life, I'll just to just be grateful to you, my friend, seriously. Well, I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to, to get to be a part of something that is so much bigger than myself. Um, and for but, people who don't know, Edna Carr, I was part of the first graduating class. This is the 30th anniversary of the first graduating class. So the time symmetry of all this is very um, emotionally, you know, resonant. Um, yeah. You know, 30 years since graduation, a lot of my classmates, um, for them, this is, you know, part of it's their story, too, you know, in a lot of ways, because um, Carr for us was a very unique experience. And it is different now, but it we we still believe and still feel that 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 kinship with them with this with this current group of students. So wow. to 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 have that and to have to be a part of telling that and being somebody who not only attended the school 
graduated from the school, had my brothers and sister, my brother and sister graduated from there. My mother was PTO president and all these things. And we helped make it a high school as a family. And then I helped reopen it after Hurricane Katrina. So car is like in my blood in so many different ways. And to get to do this was just a, a very, like the more I get to talk to people and the response to other from other people for what you created and what you brought together and our parts in it, just that is, has been overwhelming. Well, thanks for saying that, David. And and really the way I look at this is that I didn't create it. You all created it just as you said there, right? I think what's blown me away over the last three years is because I didn't just follow them during the football season, right? I was embedded uh, for three years with these people. And it, this is, this is, this, there's something about this community that's just so special. And all of you feel the same about it, whether it is not the place it was when you were growing up, whatever it is now, you all have so much respect for those who came before you. And you all care so much about preserving it and keeping it. Uh, at what it is moving forward, despite all of the difficulties now that you didn't deal with 30 years ago. Um, but, you know, I mentioned that in the speech the other night, right, is that, you know, Bryce wouldn't be Bryce without Shabar Jabluk, who came before him. Shabar Jabluk is such a pillar in the community and, and one of the most incredible people I've ever met. And Jabbar would be so quick to tell you that he couldn't have done it without Don Watney and Bill Robinson and Rock Wildbacker. And, you know, Patrick Sertan for you, um, I mean, everyone, everyone I talk to has someone that they want to name that was a part of, of this because it doesn't just take one person. It's, it's just something in this community that you all have that's so special. And that's what I witnessed. And that's, that is what I think also separates this story from any other is, is that it's not just about this football team. This isn't just a little town in the middle of nowhere. This is a really, really special historic neighborhood that fights to fights for each other and are they're doing remarkable things that aren't just unusual in this city it's they're unusual in this country when you come in to do this and new orleans is a very interesting place in that it's extremely welcoming to the world this is a it's a tourist city but at the same time new orleans is very leery of outsiders because outsiders can treat us like a tourist area, you know, didn't come in to get what they want out of it and go home and leave the city as it is. And for some folks, there was that, there's that, that uh, hesitance to talk to somebody from the outside and conveying their story. Now you're not a, a full on outsider. You weren't coming to New Orleans unaware of how the city worked, but you're still not of their community. You're not of their, you weren't produced the same way they were. You don't speak the same way that they speak. So how do you get that trust? What was the process in just getting in all the layers from the families to the school, to the community's involvement? How did you do that? And how do you lay that uh, groundwork to, for that trust? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's an important topic. I, I'll say first that uh, what I've noticed with people from New Orleans, that whether you're doing something good on them or something negative, not everyone's going to be happy with it. Right? <laughs> it's that people are are very defensive of this place and i get it because so many people are coming in and they're trying to identify it and claim this is what it is this is what it is and that's not fair right new people from new orleans should be the ones telling you what it is but because there are so many people coming in that happens but um look i lived here in my 20s i fell in love with this city because of its people 
Um, I was, I worked for WLBL for five years. I worked at, I, I covered Friday Night Lights. I saw every part of this city, right? When I, when you work in local news, you just, you see it all. Like I literally every day was in it. I was covering a fire or a murder or a festival, you name it, right? I saw it all. And so over that time, as I fell more and more in love with this place, I, I did understand the people. And I was always careful to not be one of those people that was trying to say what it is, right? Or, or to label it. What I love about New Orleans and the people here is they treat it like it's a, a, a like a relationship of theirs. It's re- people talk about New Orleans like it's their other husband or wife or best friend, right? It doesn't happen in other cities. It's literally referred to as like a person, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so that all being said, I came back here three years ago with that in my head and that respect and understanding that I'm, I'm coming into this and I'm not ignorant about, about this city and what it means to enter into a community and try and take on a project like this. And so I knew it would take a long time to earn the respect and the trust of the people in this community. I'm also white and that plays a role, right? It's like, I'm sure that there were people in the community who probably felt that a black person should be doing this. And, you know, I I respected that too. There were times I was worried that this might not happen just because of my color. So, what happened was that over months of being around these people, I started earning their trust. I would, I would, I would be there oftentimes without a camera, right? I was just observing. I was a fly on the wall. I was getting to know them. I would go to the parents' houses. I would talk to them. I would help them try to understand what I was doing. And through like the about six months into it, I built a little trailer, twenty minutes long, with the help of my coworkers an incredible editor, Joe Langford, that I've worked worked with the last 10 years, my father, and then Gerardo Brooks Jr., who's my best friend who lives here in New Orleans, who you know as well, David. Mm-hmm. And we put this trailer together and the trailer was a game changer because it allowed us to show people something tangible rather than just being like, hey, we're here, we wanna do this thing on you guys, you know? And that, when you when you don't have it in the show, people have been burned, right? They like. A lot of times stuff comes out in this city and people aren't happy with it. And I and I understand that. I've seen it happen time and time again. So that we put this trailer together, you're in the trailer. And I thought it was a wonderful representation of what we were trying to do. And Bryce saw the trailer, the parents saw the trailer and people started speaking up. And they started helping others in the community understand that this was a good thing and that this could help. Right. And and that's when things really started to turn. What is the the most difficult part of being a documentarian in this case when you are watching these things unfold and you're trying to maintain your objectivity and your distance as you're watching these events unfold? But you also know what consequences exist and these things that are happening. How do you stay back and not converse with the subjects about the decisions or that they are or not making? I think that's one of the hardest parts of the job. Uh, and I I know other journalists that I've met over the years have, have suffered through this as well. For me, what, what was really difficult was that I got really close with these kids. And every one of these kids is losing family members and friends to gun violence, right? Taiji Hill lost two of his best friends and his cousin in his senior year. All three were murdered. And I'm there with the camera 
And I'm wanting to just hug Tai G and be with him because I love him at this point. But then I have to ask him to be on camera, right? Like a day after this has happened to him. And, and it's a guilty, uncomfortable feeling that I have to go through, right? That I don't enjoy that part of the job. And uh, one of the players on the team is, is murdered and that's in episode five. And we show up that night at the hospital with Bryce and the coaches and the mother finds out there at the hospital that her son has been killed. And that's seared in, in my mind for the rest of my life. And, and those, those moments uh, it's, it's not about me there. It's you wish no one was ever going through this, but it makes it, it's really hard. Right. Cause I sign up for this knowing that stuff like this could happen, but then it happens and it, it makes it hard to do this job for sure. And how do you then relay that to people who are going through this, you know, who ha are having these raw moments of their lives recorded and they know that they're going to relive this in some way in memoriam forever. It's going to be, you know, captured on film, this this horrible moment in their lives. How do you you make that approach and say, are you ready to talk about this? And then just be again, just absorb everything they say. Well, because a lot of this stuff that happened where they did finally let me in, it, it it took it over a year before we got to that point. It It's not like I was there in those first months and, and things were happening. Right. But I wasn't there for them. I hadn't gotten in with, with these people at that point. So when this happens to Tai G, I'm two and a half years into knowing him. Right. I've, I've spent holidays with his family. And so he's comfortable enough at that point to feel like the camera's not there, one, which is also important because I filmed 270 days over two years. And so they're so used to the cameras being around. It's very intimate. I don't have a sound man most of the time. It's me and a producer and that's it usually. So that alone helps make them feel more comfortable. But then also because we know each other so well at that point, they feel okay and they trust me to just speak candidly. And that I think is when you can put something out that's so powerful that can make a change in this country. When, when people genuinely open up and share their feelings and they aren't just telling you the surface because that's what I've spent a lot of my life before this doing is rolling up to places and spending two weeks with people, getting the answers I needed and then getting out, right? And that's what the first six months of this was. But once you get that past that past that point, then the real the real stuff starts happening, and that's what makes this series so special. What was your idea when you came into it? What were you looking to accomplish? And then how did that change? Did and how much did it change to your final outcome? So when I started, I, I originally pitched um, Bryce Brown and JT Curtis, and I wanted to follow a kid in eighth grade from both schools and just do almost like a hoop dreams mm -hmm. uh, documentary. That was the initial idea. It's in a pitch that I wrote to both of them. I met with both coaches and I, and I told them that's what I wanted to do. But then after spending time with Bryce, I not only realized that it, I didn't want to spread myself too thin and be covering two different schools and, you know, 
not having the time to properly dive in with with one group and do it right. And I knew that if I was going to do this on Bryce, it was going to take everything. Mm-hmm. And um, and what was the second part of the question, David? We were saying morph from what you were, you know. Oh, right, right. Process. And so, and so then, yes. And then I realized that, man, I can't go with an eighth grader right now. There's so much happening right now in front of us with these kids who are sophomores and juniors and seniors. And I need to just focus on them. And this story is too important to wait five years if we're going to follow an eighth grader, right? That was the other thing that started standing out to me. The kids are getting killed on these streets every day. And there was no time. And I could tell that these people needed help. And if in any way this document, this doc series could do that, right? That's the power of something like this. And so it it then it became like this, this moment of, oh, wow, like these look at these incredible juniors and seniors who are doing everything they can to fight the temptations that are pulling them to the streets and stay on this team and graduate and go to these colleges like there. We don't need to wait. This is happening now. And we need to get this out there as soon as possible. When one of the things that that really hits me is I look at these kids and when I see them you see physically how large they are because they're athletes and they, they work out and they can also put on this great air of, of, of manhood. But in, there are so many moments, whether it's in joy, sadness, confusion, even in the first episode, cause that's all I've seen. But even in those, that episode, that first episode, there are those moments where it is clear how much they are still little boys and preserving that, that part of them that gets to be a little boy for as long as possible. It's so hard for them. You know what I mean? I was afforded the luxury of getting to be a kid for 18 years and you were too. These kids, they are fighting to hold on to any parts of their childhood. It's heartbreaking, David. That's, that's one of the hardest parts of this. Right. And that's what I, I think this is the most underreported problem in our country right now. And I don't understand why it's not topic A. I don't know why the president's not talking about this more. I don't know why politicians aren't talking about it more. It is absolutely heartbreaking to see these kids because they're not adults. They act like adults because they've been forced to, right? Because mm-hmm. of their, because of their circumstances, they were forced to grow up faster than the rest of us. And they're not allowed to be kids all of them, every one of them, they can't go to parties. They don't go out at night. They stay in their homes. They are scared to be out in public. They're scared if a photo is posted of them in a public place that could be with the wrong person. They live in fear that they could get shot any day, whether or not they're the target. It sucks to even be saying this out loud, right? It's just, it's just crazy. And it's, you know, it's for Bryce, you know, and he talks, one of the things he talked about at the the premiere was availability. And, and that's what being a coach is. And we talk about the same with athletes. Every time I talk to a coach about an athlete, the greatest ability is availability. Can you talk about the toll that you witnessed? Because he does this without, without question. He does it without ask for recognition or reward other than the reward of his paycheck and and the little you know trophies and, and rings but the toll that it takes on him as a man day in and day out and his staff 
and the people that love these kids. Can you talk about how, uh, what you witnessed with that? Well, I've I've come to love Bryce as well. I, I deeply respect him. And I, I'd say I noticed that more than almost anything else is the toll it took on. It takes on him and has taken on him. Um, he says, he always says, everyone has a price to pay no matter what you do, whatever profession you choose. But with this particular profession and in the world that we're living in right now, Bryce is playing the role of not just the coach, but of the father of an older brother of the therapist or whatever these kids need. And when he takes on these hundred kids every year, he's also taking on their families. It's not just the hundred kids on the team that became really clear to me the longer I was with him and Bryce is on call 24 seven. That's he's not just saying that. I mean, we don't have that on film enough Mm -hmm. and he protects that part of it. You know, we always agreed together. There's only so much that we can show. Right. And, and because there's only so much that needs to be shown to get the point across. But I would say Bryce is probably getting calls two to three nights. I mean, two to three times a night in the middle of the night from someone on the team or a extension of, of someone on the team going through something and not just that, but he's also still there for the thousands of kids who've graduated. And that's what blew me away as well. Once these kids leave him, they don't leave him. They are still with him forever. And, you know, I, I want, I hope this is said carefully here, but I worry about him. Mm-hmm. Um, anyone who would take on this kind of a role, this, this can really take it out of you, right? This can, this can break you. And Bryce has had to watch too many of his players be buried. He's been, he's had seven players since he started coaching who were murdered on the team in the 17 years he's been there. And every one of those he still thinks about and sees the faces of the, of the parents and the family members who were there. So there are so many factors that we can talk about here for, for how, how much weight is on this man. And he needs help. And he's got 18 incredible coaches helping him. And it ain't enough. It, no, exactly, exactly. And um, that's clear now because what I also have noticed is that with everything he and all and all the coaches are doing, things aren't getting better in the community. It's it's only getting worse. It's a tourniquet. Yeah. It's a tourniquet. And that's that's the part that I think that I don't want people you know, my concern when we tell these stories is always that people walk away and they go, I'm really hopeful because there are people like Bryce doing what they don't want to do. Right. And to me, you know, I think that you've handled this with the proper level of this is not to make you feel good. This is to make you see something and do something because you have used action words whenever you've described what you've wanted to see after it's never been about the passive act of viewing. It's about the action that you want to inspire and that you hope that what you've captured inspires in the people who see it, that after you watch it, you get up and you either call, you act, you do something that helps change this where you are or for those kids where they are. 
Yeah, that's exactly it, man. I don't, I really don't like that. I think it's a, it's a cop out when people just say, oh, well, thank God that we've got people like that out there. Right. The, the point here is that people should watch this and say, damn, like we could all be doing a little more. We could all be doing more here. And why aren't we in the littlest things? And why, why are we leaving it just to a couple of these people to do it? Right. Why does it take, why, why Bryce, like, as I've said before, Bryce was doing this. There were no cameras around all these years. Mm-hmm. No one was watching him. He's not making much money. He's giving everything for these kids. And, and now you're watching as then despite all of his hard work, two kids were killed in the last two years that we filmed. And this is after they've already created this incredible system, right? Like they are, this is a powerhouse program here that is successful and has 10 to 15 kids going off to D1 colleges every year. This is unheard of, but they're still losing kids. And that's when I get worried because I saw it in the coaches this last year. When you've got coach Norman Randall saying after the death of one of the kids that he started questioning whether he wanted to do this anymore because he couldn't take it. Because after a while you start giving up because you could give a thousand percent and that's not enough because they need help. And at the moment they're being asked to do this alone. And that's why, I mean, shit, man, I hope that's what comes out of this series is that because I'm sure it's there are inner city communities all over this country who are going through the same thing and they need help as well. It strikes me because there's only one Bryce Brown in the way he does these things, but there are thousands of Bryce Browns in communities across this country, people who are in circumstances where they are overmatched, trying to stem the tide of these problems that they did not create in communities that people just don't care about. And the only time people do care is when they do hear about a murder or something to further separate themselves from those people, to give them another reason to put another barrier between them and those people. And, you know, I think it's it's so important to reflect our basic humanity that these kids, these coaches, and the people in Algiers, just like in every community across this country, at the end of the day, we want the same stuff. You know what I'm saying? We just want to we want to raise our kids in peace. We want to give them the best chance at life they can get. We don't want a guarantee of anything other than that they'll be safe. And outside of that, we just want them to have a chance. And 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 I think that's what this is really about. It's not about football. It's not about one day uh, a championship game. It's not about any of these kids going to to get a particular scholarship. It's about the struggle to just be human in a country that should care more about these circumstances. Yeah, well said, David. And and I could have used that bite in our series, by the way. We just <laughs> make me feel bad. I mean. <laughs> yeah but this was just i mean i just have to thank you again for this and i want to ask you just two more questions before i let you go if there's something that you could have done differently what would you have done differently oh man that's such a good question you know maybe i i mean maybe in the beginning i was a little aggressive right i just wanted it to happen so bad because I knew this was such an important, big story. And maybe I pushed a little too hard and that could have 
made some people in the community question my intentions, right? And so looking back, I had a little bit of that New York mentality in me. Make it happen. Yes, we got to do this now, you know? I need this, I need that, right? It's kind of about me a little bit. Um, And so, yeah, I'd say those first six months, I could have chilled out a little bit. I think we were coming out of COVID and and every, actually we were in COVID, right? And everyone was going through a lot. And I didn't know what these people were going through in the months before I met them. And I'm asking them to do things right away. And so no one will ever really know that, you know, cause it's not in the show, but I guess personally, I, you know, I would say that to all the people in the community, just thanks for dealing with me in the beginning. I'm just this guy running around, you know, with my camera, just saying, get on camera, come on, I need to talk to you. So maybe, maybe that's one thing I would have done differently. Yeah. Lastly, Give me one thing that you learned during this and one that you unlearned. Gosh, David, you are so damn good at this. <laughs> um, what I learned is that what's going on in this country is worse than I thought. And I've been disappointed to see the large group of people that just don't seem to care. And everyone talks so much about how they love this city, but they could be loving their own people a lot better. And I'm talking about the people in the city who have the power to give more to the people in the city. I mean, in Algiers, there's, you know, there was a YMCA 30 years ago. There's nothing there for them now. There's nothing for these kids. There's a lot of money in this city. And there are abandoned parks. And it's almost just like Algiers was just left out to rot. And they don't care anymore. And that's been really hard to see. And it's crazy because we were dry. You know, after Katrina, we were dry. And everyone came to Algiers. You know, this is that's where school, schools opened up. That's where the public started to get things from was because Algiers was there. But it's always been this fight for that community to just like we exist in between. We're not Jefferson Parish and Orleans Parish really doesn't think about us unless they have to. And I think that that the one thing about the storm is that you have all these kids who go attend car now from all different parts of the city. And we had that a little bit when I was there. We were a magnet school and citywide access. But now it's so different that I think these kids, their isolation is both because you have to get on this bus and travel all across the city. Their isolation is both geographic and internal. You know, there's there's just, I saw it when I worked in the schools. Um, when, I, when we first got back, we saw the trauma that was there. And the one thing that I've learned is that, you know, over the years with education in particular, is that just like with police officers, we are asking people to do the wrong jobs. Teachers and coaches are not supposed to be psych- psychotherapists and family counselors and gar- uh, guard- guardians and bodyguards and all these things that we ask them to be. And like you said, the toll that it takes on them and their families and what they have to give to other kids too. I didn't even understand it just from my mom in being a PTO president. There were times where I resented her for going and dealing with other kids and being like, why are you spending your time when you could be here with us? And I'm a kid who had it pretty good. 
So I can only imagine what it's like when you are a coach and you have to leave your family on a daily basis and you're giving hours into the night, 10 o'clock at night, 11 o'clock at night to make sure kids that are not your own are okay. And you're leaving yours sitting in their beds by themselves. It's just, it's an untenable situation in this country and we have to do something about it. And I hope people don't look at this. It's like Friday night lights and think it's some dramatic episodic television show these are people's lives. 100%, man. Look, there's great football in this series, but this is really a story about these kids that we highlight and what they're going through. Man, thank you so much um, for your time and for talking with me. And us, um, thank you for, for entering my life, man, and just giving me this opportunity once again. And just, I'm so excited for people to get to see this and to interact with it. David, I can't thank you enough. I'm so happy you came into my life. You're so important to this story and you are so representative of all these other incredible people I've met in that neighborhood. Um, thank you so much, my man. Thank I you. I can't wait to watch it. We're going to take a quick break. And when we return, I'll be talking with AJ Samuel, quarterback for the Edna Carr Cougars. You are listening to Hard to Paint. Welcome back to Hard to Paint with David Grubb, and I am joined now by quarterback for the Edna Carr Cougars and also one of the primary subjects of um, Algiers America, young man, Mr. A.J. Samuel. How you doing, sir? I'm good. I'm good. Glad to be here. How you doing? I'm doing well. Um, I'm, you know, I grew up in Algiers. Um, I went to Edna Carr, um, and as a New Orleanian, I know it's difficult to let folks in and see what um, we really think about things, especially when we perceive them as outsiders. How hard was it for you and your teammates to get to a position where you felt like you could be honest in front of these cameras and just be yourselves and tell your story? Uh, I'm not gonna lie. At, at first, in the beginning, it was tough. Uh, Cause you know, it's a bunch of high school kids, you know, about 14 to 18, you know, we're not used to having cameras in our face like that. You know, we just getting into the the spotlight of being on the news, you know, with those cameras in our face, you know, on Friday nights, but it was, it was kind of tough for us, but I think what opened us up was allowing those guys, like, like you said, Jackson and um our, the other guy named Mac, them seeing the tragedies we have to go through. So it's like by them seeing, you know, they open up to us, we open up to them more. That's when we felt more comfortable just by them, you know, seeing what we go through on a daily basis. When you think about people watching the story of you and your teammates and what goes on at Edna Carr, what do you want them to take away from this when they watch it? That, you know, football is, is you see us playing it. That's what this main thing is about. But at the end of the day, we're more than an athlete. Like, like LeBron says, you know, like we're kids who have to deal with things in the city of New Orleans that, that the typical kid shouldn't shouldn't see every day. But instead, we are we're losing teammates, we're losing friends, we're losing family members on a consistent basis. And, you know, um, at this point, we're pretty much numb to it. And we want the world to know that that's what's going on. But at the same time, we still have the brothers there. We still have the family there. We still have people around us to build us back up. And, you know, we lean on each other for the things that we need and also like to be successful in life at the end of the day. And the car is it is unlike a lot of places. <laughs> yeah. um, the way we, we talk about car pride, you know, second to none, that means 
something special to us. Um, for you, when did Edna Carr get on your radar as a student? And how long has that relationship been building with the coaching staff and with the school? For me personally, it was more of a behind the scenes thing. Um, they did a more a lot more communicating with my father rather than me. So I was, you know, in middle school worrying about, you know, getting my grades up, you know, doing a little middle school flag football, things like that. But once I found out was towards the end of my eighth grade year and my dad let me know, hey, like car, they want you. And like that was huge for me because growing up, I wanted to be there. Like it was right around the corner from my house. You know, I hear the band playing. I'm always at the games. So, you know, it was it was huge for me. And I knew once. Once that that move happened, I, it was it's really exciting. You know, it's like going to D1 University, like LSU, you know, FAMU, Florida State schools like that. So, you know, it was it was big for me. What is that like that getting into that culture and then becoming ultimately the starting quarterback and knowing the tradition that goes all the way back to Patrick Sertan in 93, leading to the first state championship and these greats that we talked about including Tonka, who we lost. Yep. What is it like for you to be the at, at this point, you know, ca the carrier of that tradition? It is a great feeling. You know, uh, I remember Leonard Kelly was the quarterback before me. So, you know, he was like, you know, my freshman year, he was telling me, look, this is not a regular car you're driving. You know, this is this is you getting the keys to a Ferrari. You know, him and Coach Bryce, you know, just guide me slowly but surely into something I knew I can handle. You know, without them, I, I don't know what I'll be doing. You know, I don't think I would handle as much things as I as I did, you know, because I, I had a pretty good career there. You know, it was it was it was great. It was a great feeling. You know, like I said, you're driving a Ferrari when you when you're the quarterback in the car, you're not driving a regular car. It's almost uh, I'm sure you've seen uh, the 30 for 30 on the U. Yep. So. Car, we talk that that's in the first episode where we talk about the, the the alumni who come back. Now you're about to be one of those alumni who's going to be in position. How do you view it? Your responsibility to those next classes, both of athletes and of Endicar students. Um, it it's a it's a blessing, really. Um, just to be one of the guys who they say they look up to. You know, I never thought I would be the person who they say, "Oh my gosh, that's AJ Samuel." But now I am. So, you know, I make sure I give back as much as I can. Any tips and anybody needs, no matter what it is, you know, I make sure I'm there for them because at the end of the day, you want the the guy behind you to be better than you were. So, you know, that's really what what it's all about, you know, especially being with the young guys. You know, they're a great group of kids. So, you know, I just want them to be as best as they can be, you know, hopefully better than better than I was, better than my whole team was. Car staff is kind of unique, too, and that so many of the staff are alumni. Um, been through the program themselves. What is it that makes the entire staff, and then of course, um, Coach Brown in particular, what makes them so unique, and why are y'all able to replicate success year in and year out? Uh, like you say, you know they're alums of the school, so they they understand the culture, the pride, the desire to win, uh, just as much as the kids have uh, while they're playing. You know, um, and also. When I mentioned the brotherhood, you know, that's the same thing amongst the coaches. You know, we're just a reflection of the coaches. And, you know, we always stick together no matter what it is, even though we may have our differences at the end of the day, we always come back to each other because we're a family. What is the feeling of the, the level of protection that these coaches feel for all of their, their athletes, how much they want to shield you from what's going on? How secure do you feel within it? And then what's it like to be outside of that? 
Uh, it's very secure. Um, it's it's just having, like I said, it's an extended family. Like the coaches understand what's going on on the outside walls in the city of New Orleans. So you know they're making sure, you're like, hey, we're checking on you. You know, uh, that that year we had Hurricane Ida, they making sure everybody good. Hey, do you guys need some food? You guys need a place to stay for a little while. Like you know, it's 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 a it's a great bond that we have, and like it's not even asked for. It's it's just given to us. And you know, some of us may take it for granted, but you know, we need those guys and. Is it's a it shows how huge of a role they play. You talked about the things that you shouldn't have to experience, and you guys have had to grow up. Not just the guys, but the girls at the school as well. They've all experienced the same tragedies and loss too. But you all have to grow up so much faster than normal. How do you hold on to some sense of youthful innocence wherever you can? How do you get to just be? a kid and just how often do you just get to release all of that stuff? Um, it's, it's about a 50, 50 battle. Um, because you know, at this, like you said, wanting to be a kid, you want to go out to parties, you want to go out to eat with your friends, your family, you know, but at the same time, you still have to look over your shoulder, make sure you're watching how you're moving, make sure you watch with the people who are around you. You know, you never know what somebody's getting into. So, I mean, with ball as a, as an athlete, you know, it, it's not hard. Cause you know, we, always on the grind, you know, lifting weights, watching film, always in a room with coach. So that part of it, but you know, like, like getting out on the weekends, you know, it's just being smarter how you moving, you know, it's not, it's not a game of, let me test my luck. It's always, you want to be, you want to be safe. You want to be cautious. You're like, ah, maybe this situation don't look good. Let me leave. When you have teammates that you perceive are starting to go left as coach calls it, um, what do you as players do? And when you feel like you're in a situation that could be something negative for you, whether it's interpersonal or internally, how do you, is it just, do you feel that comfortable? You could just go say it. If it's about another teammate, do you talk to the teammate first? How, you know, how, what, what are those, how do you, how do y'all make this thing work? Um, with the relationships we have with each other, with our brothers, you know, our teammates, we're so straightforward and blunt to where we can go straight to it. You know, we're taught to be straightforward as a man, you know, look, let's, let's nip it out the bud now instead of sugarcoating it and letting it like, you know, linger along. So, you know, we'll go straight to the teammate if, if that's what's going on. And, you know, first being the helping hand of talking to them, make sure right. we reach first and then maybe be able to teach after we reach them. Like, Hey, look, maybe this is not the path you need to go on. Let's look at the outcomes of this. If you choose to do this, but also, if you stay on this right path, look what can come out of this as well. It's it's going to be interesting to watch the world look at this from their view. And sure. do, are you concerned at all that people will not read this, the you know, and view this the way it's intended, that they're going to see this and view you all again as others and not see themselves in you? and understand what it is that you're trying to tell them. I honestly believe it'll be so straightforward to where it goes over their head. Uh, Cause like we said, we're just teenagers having to experience certain things that we shouldn't when we're at the end of the day, we're just trying to play football. Mm -hmm. You want to be a normal kid who can um, go play a football game and then go have a party, but it may not be, it may not be that situation. So outside looking in, it may be, Oh, these guys are over exaggerating. It's not that dangerous when it really is. Or it may be, oh, that's not true. 
um, this guy doing this, this and that, because they don't know that other side of a person, whereas we do and we're living it. Do you think that this will inspire people to make things better, not just for New Orleans? This is a consistent problem across the country, the lack of resources, the lack of things in our communities, jobs, affordable housing. for, And, and it's a very black story. I mean, like, we just have to be honest. These are black kids with black coaches dealing with black issues in a black city. It, it, it's, it, it's something that's, that, that for a lot of people is going to be difficult to swallow. Yeah, I, I think I think that it, it will. It will teach younger generations more than anything. You know, the kids now may be all the way into something that, you know, they may not want to be into or something that they may not can get out of or it may spark a light bulb or something. But I think for the younger generations, I think it'll affect them the most because of the people we are, the people like the Aaron Andersons, the Taiji Hills, the Destin Hills, you know, looking up to them is like, hey, they did this and they made it out. They did this and they're a superstar, not amongst the city of New Orleans, not amongst the state of New Orleans, but across the nation. They have other guys looking at us like, hey, I know you. You're from that school and the car. Like, yeah, I think that's how that effect will be. Car has been famous for its football, famous for its band. We don't yep. got the band. <laughs> and it's and it's been one, one of the most um, well-received academic schools. You know, we know that Wars of Cars won academically. Do you think that this also is great for selling the story of public education? You know, if you, if you invest in these kids, they can produce. Oh, for sure. Because like like we said, like. There's more to it than just football. We're like you said, these coaches are on us about our grades as well. Like it's not just a, a football thing. It's not we want you to win the championship. We want to see you be a better man. We want you to go to college, get your degree and be able to if you choose to come back to the city, provide for your family, provide for uh, whoever is in your path and who is in your home, whoever is in your household. You know, if somebody came up to you and said, I don't know who Bryce Brown is. I've heard all about him. You know, I've heard these things. Can you tell me who Bryce Brown is? What would you say? Bryce Brown is a guy who's going to give it to you straight, no matter what the situation is. But at the same time, he's going to he's gonna let you experience things and learn things on your own if that's necessary. He's going to let you know, hey, this is what's going to happen. This is what life brings. But if you allow me to teach you and groom you and let you become a, a great man that you can be, then he will. You know, he's very selfless. You know, uh, you hear him saying a bunch of his speeches. He loves us all and he's going to teach us in the right way. So, you know, if we just accept that teaching, accept that the lessons that he's given us with his wisdom, you know, we'll be fine. Coach Bryce is a, is a great guy. You know, he's always just looking for the betterment of you. Now, as you take this into graduation, can you just let folks know what some of your plans are and what you just aspire to do as you go forward? Uh, you know, of course, you know, graduate, you know, that's it's the main goal. I can't wait to walk across that stage. But um, you know, go into the into the college world, you know, be a be a great academic student, um, and continue to play ball. You know, I would I would like to continue to play quarterback at any university. You know, I would just want to represent Carr the best way I can. You know, and then if God willing, you know, just make it to the league, you know. That's always the story for everyone. So, you know, just pray that I make it one day. It's a it's a unique story, but it's also a very common story. And I hope that people take um, something really good from this because it was it was my pleasure to be a part of it. 
Um, but watching y'all and it, to carry on the legacy, both on the field, and I, I've gotten to be at a number of y'all's games over the last few years as well. Um, I just want to say that I'm proud of what you do on the field and how you represent our school off the field. And um, y'all, y'all, y'all do service to what it is to be an Endicott Cougar. Oh, I appreciate that. It's an honor. Really, it's, it's an honor to get to talk to you. And I, I wish you nothing but the best um, in the future going forward. And just thank you again uh, for giving me some of your time um, to talk about this project. Thank you. I really appreciate that. You know, I'm going to do the best I can. You know, won't let you down. Yes, sir. That is AJ Samuel, uh, class of 2023 at Edna And um, I just want to thank him again and Jackson Fager for joining me on Hard to Paint. And please check it out on Hulu, Algiers America, The Relentless Pursuit, five-part documentary, two parts coming out on the 19th, and then one part released each week afterwards. So until the next time, y'all know how to follow me at DM Grub. This has been Hard to Paint. Hard to paint.